So, um, I thought I'd pull a Tommy and say, this is going to be a top ten lesson on Numbers 26 that you've heard I'm confident of that. But I'm not really confident that it's going to be a top ten lesson on Numbers 26. But, you know, I was, a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, John and I were getting together. We're teaching the high school class next quarter, and it came to this, and we're trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to cover? What's he going to cover when Tommy's out? And then, you know, we were going through, okay, he's going to have Balaam and Balak and the donkey, and then I get a census. And I just knew right then I was not living right because <laughs> I get a census. However, um, I think the census, one of the things as I was going through it was, or not just the census, but 26 and 27, harkens back to some of the things that we've covered already. And it's a good, um, you know, it's a good reminder for us. And as Phil uh, prayed in his prayer, I think we're going to see the faithfulness of God come through uh, tonight. Uh, we're going to, again, be reminded of the failures of the people time and time again. And yet, again, God's grace and mercy uh, that he showed to them. And so, um, so hopefully some of those things will come through as we cover the text tonight. So just by way of kind of reminder, though, like uh, the immediate context that we're in, the previous few chapters have been about Balaam and Balak and uh, the Baal worship at Peor in chapter 25. Um, you know, we John mentioned this briefly, but, you know, this is kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the enemies of Israel trying to get them to sin. And so... They've, it seems like they've got these problems that are happening that spring up within their own group because of their own impatience or grumbling or lack of faith and trust. And then you've got the enemies of God, enemy of God's people who are also conspiring to get them to sin. And you see God just, his sovereignty, his control, how he takes care, make sure that you know he is not going to curse them. He's going to bless them. But twenty five, we see while that is happening, the people are just stumbling, and they're just um, they're getting enticed by the Midianite women to uh, to bow down to them in verse twenty two to to eat and bow down to their gods. And again, like we covered on on Sunday, they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and we see the the disaster that that brought upon the people, right? Um, 24,000 people died by a plague in verse 9. And in verse 10 and following, we've got Phinehas, who sees, who we learn is Zimri, um, is being very bold and arrogant with his sin with this Midianite woman. And in his zeal, he kills both the Midianite woman and Zimri, who was a leader in the house of Simeon. And we see the blessings um, then that God, well, the, the mercy then that God uh, displays. He relents on the plague, but still, again, you know, 24,000 people died by plague. And so then that brings us to chapter 26. Before we kind of get into this, I do want us to think about Numbers 14 and 15. So, if you'll recall, Numbers 13 is when the spies come back from being 40 days in the land. We've got, obviously, the 10 who gave the, the bad report. We've got Joshua and Caleb who give the good report. Chapter 14, 
All of the congregation um, raised a loud cry. All of the people of Israel grumbled. The whole congregation cried out. Would that we had died in Egypt. Joshua and Caleb try to persuade them to show trust and faith in God. They don't listen to them, and then God punishes the people, right? So, you know, the anyone 20 years or older, they are going to die in the wilderness. Another generation will come up, will be raised up, that will go into the wilderness. Do you remember what happens after this incident, though? What does God do almost immediately after he pronounces the, these consequences and the judgment for their sin? Do you remember? He gives laws, and what would kind of what what effect might that have had on the people hearing about these laws? I know one of the things that I remember we talked about a little bit. It was it starts out when you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you, then make offerings like this. Right, and so it's like reaffirming the promise to their children at least um, about what's going to happen despite having been punished absolutely so these laws would have reinforced like the promises reinforcing the promises reinforce relationship right that God will have with his people they were going to offer these sacrifices to remember the phrase attributed to those sacrifices that's repeated over and over again those sacrifices would be a Sweet aroma, the acceptance that they, God would have of these sacrifices that they were going to offer, um, you know, implies possession of the land, also implies abundance, right? So when they go in, it is going to be a land of milk and honey. They are going to have an abundance uh, to offer back to God these sacrifices. So you think about them you know, anticipating the promised land, the blessings that would come in it, and the fellowship, the relationship that that they would have with God right on the heels of them failing in a big way. I think we have a similar situation. In chapter 25, the people have failed in a very big way. God has judged them, has 24,000 people have died, just like um, Joshua and Caleb kind of stood up in front of the angry mob uh, for the Lord. Here we have Phinehas who is standing up for the Lord and kind of taking matters into his own hands. And God is um, is is grateful for that. He holds off on further judgment for them. So I think one of the things that we see in 26 is just like in chapter 15 where God reaffirms promises and relationship. 26 and 27, I think we see God's promises kind of come through. A reinforcement of, uh, in spite of your sin, um, God's going to be faithful to his promises and what he's uh, told the people he's going to do. So, any thoughts or comments before we kind of dig in? All right. We are not going to read chapter 26. We'll read a little bit of it. Um, I do hope that you have read it, but I would like to see. Uh, I would like to see if someone would read the first four verses of chapter twenty-six. David. 
They, then it came about after the plague that the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saying, Take a, cent- a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel from twenty years old and upward by their father's households, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel. So Moses and Eliezer, the priests, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Take a census of the people from twenty years old and upward, as the Lord has commanded Moses. And the sons of Israel who came out of the land of Egypt were... Okay, yeah. We we can go ahead and stop there. But just thinking of, with that kind of ringing in our ears, um, I'm going to read Numbers 1. Uh, beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness in the tent of the meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the names, every male, head by head, from 20 years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war. You and Aaron shall list them company uh, by company. And there you shall, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of, of his father's house. And we'll stop there. We see almost the exact same command offered by God. Now we're 38 years later. Um, similar command, similar purpose. We don't necessarily read of all of the purposes in these first four, these first four verses, but what is the purpose of this sentence or the purposes of this uh, census? Right. So, kind of get uh, uh, the number of the people uh, who are able to go to war. So they're preparing for their entrance into the promised land. Other purposes? Did you have another one, Sarah? Well, it because it's going to be like a list and everything. At the end, you can say, "Oh, none of these people were the ones who were involved in sin in that way back when they were told they weren't going to survive." Right. Yeah, so at the, at the end of this, we get, um, we might touch on this a little bit later as well, we get um, the confirmation that God fulfilled his promise relative to the punishment due to those people after uh, Numbers 14. By the way, if I say Le- in my note, even typing it up, I always wanted to say Leviticus. I don't know why. Um, so if I say Leviticus, I might have already said it. Sorry about that. So there's the military preparations yes and the land when they get there is going to be divided by the size of the tribes so um, although I don't think they knew that at this time but they'll be they'll have it all handy <laughs> right absolutely absolutely so um, by the size of the tribe the amount of land will be given to the tribe I think by then lot by lot also within the within the tribe to divvy it up so there's there's that aspect as well so the kind of from a military standpoint to uh, prepare them or to, to understand who can fight. Second, in preparation for getting the land, right? How it's going to be divided. Yes. And also, since the number is roughly the same, six hundred three versus six hundred one, um, it's kind of a. At least for us, we can look at it and go. God took good care of the people during this 38-year gap between censuses. We've got almost the same number of people. 
the distribution changed a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, so it's not like everybody died and there were no new babies and that, you know, that's not what happened, which, you know, the population did not decrease. Right. Appreciably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's within just a a few percentages. Actually, one of the slides that I had uh, that I was going to display shows exactly what that distribution is, who gained and who lost. Um, There is a 0.3% uh, difference in the population from 38 years ago versus what we see in chapter 26, 603,550. Now there's 601,730. And so again, kind of what Sarah said, you know, what would you think might happen to a people who for the past 38 years since the last census have wandered in the wilderness? And have complained about this awful food and the lack of water. What would you have think? What would you think would happen to their population? Right. I mean, just sickness, disease. Right. Like, I mean, the elements. There's all sorts of factors that could contribute that you would probably expect it to be a lot smaller. And they're essentially in the exact same situation that they were 38 years ago. I think that's cool. I think we see God not just sustaining them, but I would, like, they are, you know, 603,547 men have died. And all of them have essentially been kind of replaced. Like, that's impressive to me. Thoughts? Any thoughts on that? So we see God's provision um, on top of just, you know, we read in Deuteronomy that their, you know, their shoes did not wear out. They've, they've got food. They've got meat um, with the quail and the manna and the water. He's blessing them. Um, I just want to make sure before we move on I didn't forget anything. When we think about this whole list... Any themes kind of emerge besides, you know, they list the names and the numbers? Would it anything of, uh, particularly when we think through, you know, verse 56? A couple of things of note. Um, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, their numbers dropped. Also, Naphtali, but let's just think about Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. One of the cool visuals would have been the tabernacle with, on the south side, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad all on the south side together. When we think about, this is something that I... I, I found in research, they're camped on the same south side together. Dathan and Abiram were sons of Korah who did not die when the earth swallowed them up. And Zimri was from Simeon. So two of the notable 
stories of rebellion in the in this book come from Simeon and Reuben. And so is it also then Gad's just caught up because they're in close proximity? Do we see, you know, some influence happening? This is speculation, but I thought that was interesting that of the four that lost, um, three of them are grouped together, two of them directly tied to rebellion. So there's bad company corrupts good morals, right? We, we see that. Um, Naphtali was also one, and I think Naphtali's on the, uh, the north side. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun all gained, um, some good numbers, and they are, they are all on the east side at the entrance to the temple as well. So again, I don't know if this necessarily means anything, um, but I do find that interesting from a, from a position standpoint. All right. Any other any, anything else, David? The other thing that strikes me: uh, six hundred thousand men to conquer the land of Canaan. That seems like a rather low number, mm. uh, and especially given you know the size of some of those in Canaan. Right. Uh, but you know, the, the Lord's made this point all along. It's not your might. It's not your numbers, your strength. It's my strength, and I'm giving you the land. You're right. not taking it. I'm giving it to you. Right. That's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up because what what has changed over the past 38 years for them to now be successful? Right, I mean, not a whole lot, right? They just need to kind of have faith and act on that faith, right? That's it, right? That's the thing that needs to change very dramatically over the past thirty-eight years. And I think there are some things that we get in the next chapter, not to get too far ahead of us, that are like, okay, maybe you know, this people, it does seem maybe that they have a different heart than their parents did. Um, we do see in um, in fifty two and following um, again the inheritance shall be based on the size of the tribe. So that's one of the reason why we had the census taken um, in fifty seven and following. The Levites, both in Leviticus one and here in Numbers twenty six, the Levites are excluded from the census. Um, but we have them counted in 57 and following. Um, they were in verse 62. There are 23,000 Levites. I think that was a slight increase from what we saw 38 um, years prior. They're not given um, an inheritance of a land. Why are they not given an inheritance of the land? Because God is their inheritance. God is their inheritance. That's right. I find it interesting. Part of their role, obviously, is that they are going to... Uh, they're going to be the teachers of the people, right? Uh, we see that in Malachi chapter um, 2. Uh, we see that in, I think, Second uh, Chronicles chapter 15. Uh, and other places, where in Leviticus 10, where they are responsible for teaching the people and them being spread out amongst uh, 38 cities. We're going to see that here in a couple chapters. really facilitates them being the instructors of the people relative to the law. Uh, It's also interesting that this is in Genesis 49 when Jacob is blessing his children 
uh, verses 1 through 7, Jacob talks about uh, Levi and Simeon and how they will be spread amongst their brothers. Does anyone remember why they, why Jacob um, prophesied that that would happen to them? They were violent. Um, after the rape of their sister, they destroyed the men of Shechem. Shechem, yep. Yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, and they um, kind of tricked them and then slaughtered all of them and really under false pretenses. And so because of their violence, uh, that's what Jacob had kind of prophesied would should happen to them. We see that being fulfilled. We see that Simeon really kind of gets absorbed by Judah. It's interesting, though, Levi, the prophecy's fulfilled, but in a much different light. And if we'll just remember, I think Tommy reminded us a couple of weeks ago, after the golden calf incident, you know, the Lord calls for those who are his and the tribe of Levi steps up and kills their own brothers who committed that sin. And while that prophecy gets fulfilled, it gets fulfilled in a, in a, in a much glorious sense when we see them uh, stand up for the Lord. I thought that was a pretty good, um, you know, kind of the same judgment with different results because one group really really stood up for the Lord there. A uh, couple other things real quickly, and then we'll move on to chapter 27. Uh, we have co- just reminders of the rebellion of Korah um, at the be- towards the beginning of the census in verse 9 and following. We have another uh, reminder in verse 61 of Nadab and Abihu dying when they offered unra- unauthorized uh, fire before the Lord. Uh, and then at the very end of the chapter in 64, we just have the confirmation that God fulfilled exactly what he said was going to happen. That uh, except for Joshua and Caleb, um, there's no one that else is going to be entering into the, into the land of Canaan. And all of those people um, have passed away. Uh, if they were equally distributed, it would have been 85 funerals a day over the past 38 years. Yeah. yeah. Now we know that there was several instances where you know a huge swath of people died, right? So it didn't. But still, you know the, the idea of, of death, and we know the uncleanliness that comes with death. That we've talked about it would have been constantly a constant reminder to them. Um, it would have been a constant reminder to this new generation that uh, the devastating consequences of. Um, you know, failing to believe in God. All right. We made it through chapter 20. Oh, Sarah? So, verse 11. The sons of Korah, however, did not die. Is this the first time we find out that the sons of Korah did not die? Um, I know that Abiram, um, Abiram, and I forget the gentleman's name. Jason and Abiram. Abiram. They were called out by Moses to get away from the chorus tent, I believe, uh, lest they get swallowed up. So I think there's an indicator that at least they survived back in the rebellion. But I don't... You know, we might want to... Tommy, if you're listening on Sunday, we have a question for you. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Okay. 
All right, 20, chapter 27, we have this account of the daughters of Zelophehad. Uh, someone read the first 11 verses. Craig, thank you. <clears throat> then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Nacar, son of Manasseh. You tricked me, Ryan. Yeah, I did this purpose. Joseph, the names of his daughters were Mela, Noah, Pogla, Noka, and Tirzah. And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, The daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, and he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule, as the Lord commands them. All right. So... From a culture perspective, um, both in Israel and what was typical of the surrounding nations, very male-dominated societies. And what was typical, if um, a man died and had no male heirs, uh, then or had um, uh, it would the, excuse me, his male heirs would inherit his property. If he had daughters, they were essentially left out. Their inheritance would have been um, the dowry that would have been paid uh, when they were married. That would have been considered their their inheritance um, to take care of them in the event that their husband um, dies. Uh, we have this man Zelophehad, uh, four daughters again, wandering in the wilderness. Four four kids, right? Four daughters. Um, they bring their um, their request to Moses. Eleazar, all of the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Um, And what they're wanting is for them to not get excluded from the inheritance when they enter the land. Um, We see Moses then taking this to the Lord, and the Lord uh, issues his decree. Uh, We'll get into that here in just a second. What is the significance of this story? Why... Include it? Why include it now? Any thoughts on that? I mean, part of it is they're getting ready to... The census was part of the preparation in order to divide the land for inheritance purposes and who gets what. And it lists all of the names and... So the daughters, I mean, the way the daughters phrase it is, why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family? Because he had no son. So, I mean, it's a matter of keeping 
that lineage intact so that he is known as one of the one of the families of Israel, I guess, mm-hmm. as opposed to being just some guy who died. Uh, I'm thinking that I had more to say, but it sort yeah. of went away. So yeah. Kind of being forgotten, the importance of the, the, the family name, the lineage. Other thoughts? Josh? Definitely. I find God's response so interesting because he doesn't just say, well, here's the judgment for these people. He goes on to say, now in this case, do this. In this case, do this. Mm-hmm. In this case, do this. And it sort of escalates and builds along those lines. And the overarching theme I got out of it is God's promises do not discriminate. Mm-hmm. They're for everybody. Right. He cares about everybody. Mm-hmm. He effectively agrees with these daughters. They do get the inheritance right. from their father. Absolutely. We see God's concern for the vulnerable, uh, for the overlooked, for those who are often taken advantage of. Yes. Yeah, similar. He's, um, God is shown as being radical in the cultures of the day, as you yeah. said. Just like in the New Testament, that men and women are equal in Christ was radical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, today we, we don't respect the differences in the roles, so causing issues, but our value is equal. Right. Right, absolutely. What do you what do you think about the daughters? Does this say anything about them? They were they were invested in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see them as as like trying to grab power right. for themselves. And they brought the issue to the right authority. I mean, they didn't, there's not an indication that they were like going, you know, we really should, we really should get part of this. Right. You know, that kind of thing. They had, I mean, they had kind of like respect for tradition. Right. Yeah. I think one of the things is, is show what they did shows how important that this was to them. The inheritance of the Lord was so important that they were willing to go before Moses, the high priest, and all of the congregation. You know, there might be some things in our life where it's like, well, it's just not worth doing that. Well, this this was worth it to them. Um, again, I don't want to speculate too much, but I have got to think that this was, this was a conclusion that they didn't uh, come to lightly. And um, maybe an in, I would have thought an intimidating going before maybe a hundred uh, a million and a half people and putting your case before Moses and the high priest seems to me to be kind of an intimidating situation. So I think it does show the importance of the inheritance, their trust in God that they are going to go into the land, and when they do get into the land, they want to make sure that the right thing happens. And I think it's also, um, sorry to point, um, I think it's also, how would have the children of Israel approached this type of situation in the past? And I think we can look back, and I just made a list, and, you know, the grumbling and the complaining, right? When there's a perceived injustice or they don't necessarily like how things are going, what do they do? 
they grumble and complain. In chapter 11, they complained and God lit them up on fire. Some of them. Later on in chapter 11, the rabble's complaining and Moses wants God to kill him. Um, God sends quail to, and, and then these, these people who had been complaining, they're greedy and they take all this quail and then they die. They, Miriam and Aaron complained against uh, Moses in chapter 12. Miriam gets left. See. Chapter 14, all the people complained. And, um, oh, and this is when, you know, everyone, um, 20 and over are going to die in the wilderness. Uh, in 16, Kor's rebellion. They're complaining against Moses about, uh, the whole, the whole congregation is, uh, holy. 250 men die, and then the next day when they complain about Moses killing those people, 14,700 died. That Craig reminded us of on, on uh, Sunday. At the waters of Meribah, they complain and quarrel with Moses, and Moses ends up striking a rock, right? And then he receives his punishment. In 21, they grumble against God and Moses, and then the Lord sent the fiery snakes, and many of them died, right? Time and time and time again, Things aren't going the way that they want them to go. And so they grumble. Time and time again, we see Moses taking the complaint to God. Here, we see them not complaining, but we see them going through proper channels to get a decision rendered. Right? The people talk about often how awful it is with the food and the water. And God provides... These people, these four daughters have a legitimate, like, worry. Their, their dad has died. Like, talk about vulnerable, um, uh, apt for someone to take advantage of them. They are in a very precarious situation. And yet, again, I think we just see a godly attitude amongst the women. Um, any thoughts on that? Yes, Karen. Can I bring up chapter 36? Yes. Is that okay? So it refers to them again. Yeah. Um, I don't want to jump ahead, but um, it goes along with what you're saying about how when, you know, the people say, well, if they marry outside of our, you know, uh, tribe, then that land's going to go to somebody else. Right. Um, and they, you know, verse 10 says that they did as the Lord commanded Moses. Right. You know, they, um, they went about the right way and accepted whatever God said. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so as Karen mentioned, it further further instruction is provided in 36, and there was restrictions on who they could marry. They had to marry someone within their own tribe. And again, we see their um, obedience or humility to, to do what's commanded of them. Um, I think this is, you know, again, we, we think about, um, we see this in Luke. We see women who are held up as, um, examples of faithfulness and righteousness. I think we see this with these women of Zelophehad. I think we see awesome just leadership from Moses that um, he heard their heard their request, and then in verse five he brings her case to the Lord. And what an example that is for us. Um, you know, we've got the complete revealed will of God. Uh, you know, re- revealed to us so that we can go to the Lord. There's also matters of Judgment, where we just need to go to the Lord and we need to ask for his wisdom and for his guidance. Uh, we need to follow the example of Moses. Um, the Lord's, as, as Josh mentioned, the Lord's response in terms of what should happen 
uh, if a man does not have a son um, or daughters, what, what gives very specific? Um, any thoughts on kind of why? Why so specific? Yes, Katrina. It shows like that God was God didn't make the the rule that the men were the inheritors just because man, but because He had a a way of doing things that would protect the whole society. Mm-hmm. And so these these daughters are saying, "Hey, here's a loophole that we see. Can you close it up?" And God says, "Sure, I'll close it up to where there's no way you can get around it." Right. And I, th- I think that just shows the the bigger picture that God sees and how solid his plan is to make sure everybody's taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know, God it does seem as interested then in those families having their inheritance in the land. You know, sometimes I don't necessarily appreciate, I think, the emphasis on the land. Right? And... Um, I think I, I can understand, and you know, I think from the Pharisees' perspective, and the motivation is that they don't lose the land again, right? And um, but um, you know, I can see, I can see where that emphasis, where they would want the land, they would want it within their family, um, the tie that they had to it. Um, essentially, what God says is, if a man dies, you should go to a son. If he doesn't have a son, daughter, not a daughter, his brother. He doesn't have a brother, then his uncle, and then his nearest kinsman, right? And so, all of it seems like all of the bases are, are covered. Um, again, with the the exception there in chapter thirty, chapter thirty six that we'll get to in a few minutes or a few weeks. Um, Twelve and following, uh, we have um, where Joshua is commissioned to succeed Moses as the leader. I'll begin in verse twelve. I don't think there are any hard names in here, so I will read this one. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, go up into this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zen, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest um, invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. Both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So God tells Moses that he he is going to go up onto the mountain. He's going to look into the promised land. He shall be gathered to his people just as his brother Aaron was. I think just what a comforting thought that is. Um, 
think about how you might react uh, to that news, um, particularly uh, as as the the older we get, right, the more hopefully we are anticipating being with the Lord. We might be tempted just to run. Okay, I'm going to run as fast as I can to that mountain, right? Like, let's 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 do this. Let's. Uh, I want to be gathered to to my people. And we see Moses have a completely different attitude. Um, immediately, his concern is for the people. Uh, again, it just speaks to the meekness, the humility, the selflessness that Moses displays. Um, yet in this, we also see a reminder again of why Moses can't go into the promised land. Um, and about the rebellion against his word. Um, you know, like, I mess up and, you know, maybe I mess up because I think someone else has a bad attitude, so then I come at them with a bad attitude. I'm like, I messed up, but it's because of those people. You know, if he hadn't, you know, and God is like putting that reminder in, like, in his conversation with Moses here. Yet the accountability of Moses' bad choices and his lack of belief just falls squarely on his own shoulders. And so from an accountability standpoint, I see a message being driven here that we can, um, that we need to learn. I know that I need to learn. Josh? I think it's also humbling to see exactly how Moses reacts to this. He doesn't protest. Right. He understands that he sinned and he is content bearing the consequences of that sin and if you didn't care about God and the relationship with him I think somebody would be tempted to say I've been leading these people for how many years and I don't even get to go in Right. which is a very selfish godless answer um, I think it's so important to see how Moses, you know, he's selfless because he's thinking about the people but then even in his death, he's showing the people how to have faith in God and mm-hmm. be faithful to them. Right. Absolutely. You know, his life's ambition is really taken away from him by his own actions. Um, but the ultimate the ultimate goal is the inheritance that he's going to have with God. Um you know, on, on a couple of different occasions, we see that Moses intercedes for the people when God is um, going to destroy them. Exodus 32, Numbers 14, we see this people that have consistently like disobeyed and complained and grumbled against Moses. You know, that people, Moses is really concerned and showing love for. The people who wanted him removed as their leader, he's the one who's saying, we need, I do not want them to be as sheep without a shepherd. I want them to have a leader that's going to help them go in and come out and to obey, be obedient to the Lord. Uh, We see that the Lord in verse 18 and following gives very specific instructions as to what's going to happen. And we see in 22, Moses did as the Lord commanded. And all of those things that God had said, you need to do this, that's exactly what Moses has done. Um, you know, I think in chapter 27, we just see a picture of like God's people. We see people looking towards the inheritance and that really driving behavior and motivation. We see people who 
aren't grumbling and complaining, but they're taking their concerns to the right people, going to God with their concerns and with their questions. We see people who are accepting of the consequences of their sin and not letting that uh, consequence of sin derail their faithfulness or their belief in God. Right, Just accepting it and still putting faith and trust in God and still anticipating the ultimate reward. We see uh, godly people who are appealing to God on behalf of others. We see full obedience to God's instructions, right? Like, it just seems like to me that um, this, you know, the hope that, you know, this new group is going to be different. We're going to see that. They are going to be different than their parents. We see that kind of summarized here in chapter 27. Other thoughts or questions? Is it just the, that image um, the, so that they will not be like sheep which have no shepherd and then all of the ways that Jesus fulfills that and, and I mean that whole line of reasoning and, mm-hmm. and care and right. such. Right. <laughs> we, we definitely see Moses as a type of Christ, right? Um, in 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 his attitude, in his leadership, um, talks about Joshua being a man in whom is the Spirit. If you if you recall, in um, after the people had com- grumbled, I think in chapter eleven, and he goes to God with his cons- with his concerns, and God Moses does, and God says appoint seventy elders to help judge, and then. There were some men who were given the spirits and they were doing some prophesying and Joshua was like, hey, should we stop them? And Moses was like, I would that everybody would have the spirit of the Lord. I think that's interesting that it is Joshua, um, you know, who, whom he had this conversation with is a man who receives uh, the spirit and who's going to be taking a, a leadership uh, position amongst uh, the group. Other thoughts? So Deuteronomy gives him a little bit more fanfare, but here in Numbers, like, it doesn't even say he died. Or, like, we don't know anything about, at least here in Numbers, much about Moses' death or the people's reaction to it. Right. Uh, The end of Deuteronomy does and gives him. Absolutely. says that there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Right. Right. And we see that with Joshua. Joshua had great success, but even Joshua's interactions with the Lord, with the going to the high priest in the Urim, is different than Moses. Absolutely. That's a good point. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. Hopefully this wasn't too painful. Assuming Tommy will pick up in 28 on Sunday.